Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 Third Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the gift of your word. Um, Lord, we would be left to ourselves, every one of us, with our own desires, ideas of what is good and evil. Um, But Lord, you have had mercy on us. You've spoken to us. You have come to us. Thank you for your gospel of grace. Thank you that from that gospel you transform us so more and more we might grow together in knowing you and being like Jesus and sharing in your fellowship. Uh, Lord, cause all our attention this morning to be on hearing from your word to that end. Uh, It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, When one of my daughters was about five years old, I asked her how she thought I'd been doing with not getting angry. And she said that I'd been doing pretty good. So I asked her if she thought I was never angry or angry some of the time or angry all the time. And she ranked me somewhere just below in the middle. And that was kind of humbling to me because I thought I'd been doing pretty good. In fact, I'd taught on anger a year earlier and now I kind of felt like a hypocrite. Well, about six years later, the temptation to get angry isn't gone. You know, it's interesting that the two specific commands to fathers in the New Testament is to not provoke your children so they don't become discouraged and to not provoke your children to anger. If you have kids, then have you ever been harsh with them and seen them just kind of wilt? You know, our inappropriate anger has a way of disheartening them. And how often might a parent's anger be the source of provoking anger in their child? Well, we're not going to look at anger specifically in relation to parenting today, but I bring this up because as I've prepared this message, I've been personally aware of how much easier it is to say the things I'm going to say than it is to constantly believe them and put them into practice. I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want to point you to grace and the hope for change and not live like it's real to me. But by God's grace, despite all my stumblings, the hope I want to share with you today is real to me. It's beautiful and true. And I've seen God changing me, even though I am not yet what I want to be. And the main takeaway that I want us to see today is this. Our anger is put away by believing God's anger is satisfied in Christ. So our anger is put away by believing God's anger is satisfied in Christ. We tell ourselves all kinds of excuses to justify our sinful anger, but this is the key to understanding what we need to tell ourselves when we're tempted to be angry. And we're gonna look at this in four points today. What is anger? What our anger tells us? What Jesus's anger tells us? and what we need to tell ourselves. So first off, what is anger? Well, one way to define it is that it's our response to perceived injustice. Something happens that we feel isn't right and our whole being responds in anger. When someone else gets the credit for your work, when you get charged more for something than you were supposed to, when you look at the news and you see cruelty and suffering, we know this isn't the way it should be. But not everything we perceive as an injustice is actually an injustice. The speeding ticket feels unjust, but justice has actually been served. 
So our sense of justice can be skewed. And remember, this started back in the garden when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were trying to be like God by choosing good and evil for themselves. They didn't trust what God said was good and evil, and immediately their sense of justice was skewed. They blame shifted instead of taking responsibility. Adam even implied that it was all God's fault. And ever since, man tries to play God by doing what's right in his own eyes. But what defines true justice is whether it's in alignment with what God says is good and evil. And we'll look at God's anger over injustice later. But for now, we need to realize that most of the time, our anger isn't righteous anger. In fact, some biblical counselors have observed that in order for anger to be considered righteous instead of sinful, it needs to meet three criteria. So first, a real sin has to have occurred. Have you ever lectured one of your kids only to realize that you misunderstood the situation? Remember how Potiphar was angry at Joseph and threw him into prison, but Joseph had been falsely accused. Or we might call something sin because it personally offends us, even though God's word doesn't say it's a sin. So our anger can be based in a flawed perception of the situation. Secondly, there has to be concern for God's glory. When Jesus cleansed the temple, it was because he looked at the injustice in the temple court and he was filled with concern for God's honor and God's concern for the nations. But normally, it's concern for ourselves that's at the center of our anger. We normally get angry because our glory or our desires are at stake. And thirdly, we have to have a right response Our anger gives us a kind of energy that we can use to attack or defend someone, and it matters what we do with that. In the wilderness, the children of Israel quarreled with Moses because they didn't have any water. They accused Moses of bringing them out there to die, but God tells Moses to speak to a rock and that God would provide water. But Moses has had enough at this point. He makes it all about him. Instead of magnifying God's grace, he gets angry and strikes the rock instead. But righteous anger produces a righteous response. Do we attack and defend in the service of mercy or in the service of me? Did you know that the Bible doesn't mention God getting angry until Exodus chapter four? We see man's anger right away in Genesis four, but it takes Moses trying to get out of being God's representative five times before God's ever said to be angry. And even then, what does God do? He gives Moses his brother Aaron to help him. When Jesus is angry in the book of Mark, he heals a man with a withered hand. When Paul is greatly annoyed, he frees a girl from demonic possession. So when we start to think about these three criteria, that there has to be real sin and concern for God's glory and a right response, we should realize it's pretty rare that we experience righteous anger. When we see injustice against people, we should feel grief and compassion and anger. But when righteous anger becomes unrighteous anger, as one pastor put it, it's always because I've smuggled myself onto the throne and then instead of representing God, I have replaced him. Now, anger takes many forms. 
In the Bible, anger is associated with quarreling, jealousy, hostility, slander, wrath, malice, obscene talk, and bitterness. Maybe you've never considered how anger relates to resentment or being irritable or sarcasm, being critical or competitiveness. What do you identify with on that spectrum? And maybe you don't see any of this in yourself, but what would your spouse say or a close friend? Maybe you should trust their opinion. On one end of the spectrum is attacking someone, which is what we normally think of, but on the other end is withdrawing from them. Think of the different stories in the Bible that describe anger as withdrawal. When Cain is angry, it says that his face fell. Or what about King Ahab when he wants a vineyard, but the owner won't sell it to him? Ahab went home vexed and sullen. It says, he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. Ahab sounds kind of depressed, but what's underneath that is actually anger. How do the people around you experience your disappointment? Do you withdraw in anger? Now, both of these stories end in murder, but things don't have to escalate to murder in order for God to equate it with murder. Let's read Jesus' words in Matthew 5, verses 21 to 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus shows us that anger breaks one of the Ten Commandments. We might think that our anger just flares up out of nowhere, that we can't help it. But Jesus says that we are held accountable for how we feel and how we talk. So whether we tend more towards attack or withdrawal, Jesus says we're guilty of murder. The attacking anger says, I wish you were dead. While withdrawal says, I'm going to treat you as if you were already dead. So we can say we're just frustrated or a little irritable, But whatever word we use, Jesus calls it murder. And this is the anger that we're going to focus on today, the full spectrum of sinful anger about because of perceived injustices against us. Now, I have to make a little disclaimer here because we're not going to be able to look and fully unpack anger as it relates to abuse today. With abuse, the husband desires to have complete power and control over his wife And he uses several tactics, including anger, in order to suppress her. And so abuse is not primarily an anger problem. I want to read this quote to help you understand what's distinct about abuse. We might think first of a husband who silences his wife with intimidatory abuse. No physical violence takes place, but there is plenty of threat. And ever so slowly, the barrage of demeaning comments and the constant rubbishing of every endeavor does its murderous work. It erodes every shred of self-worth, undermines any sense of value, until finally the husband realizes his terrible goal and his power is made absolute. He has a wife who no longer questions his desires or defies his will. He has made her his subject and his terrible tyranny is complete. If you're a wife hearing this and you feel like you might identify with something that I just read, then know that Jesus says his church is meant to help you. 
please reach out to me or one of the elders or a fellow member. And if you're a husband and you know there's something not right in the way you've been treating your wife, then please come and talk to us. There's hope and grace for anyone who turns to Jesus. And so next we're going to look at our second point, what our anger tells us about ourselves. So what needs to change? Well, there's some practical things that can help us change habits and avoid temptation. You'll probably give in to anger less if you exercise and get enough sleep and plan ahead. But the change that Jesus most wants for us goes much deeper. This series is all about talking to yourself, but first we're going to look and consider the things we already tell ourselves and how that exposes some of our underlying beliefs. Imagine that your child wants juice, but you tell them no. But later you hear a conflict and come into the living room to find your child holding their cup with forbidden juice all over them and the rug. And they're all upset at another kid for bumping into them. Now, if you ask your child, why is there juice all over the place? What are they going to say? Because he bumped me. But what's the correct answer? The correct answer is, because I put juice in the cup. Anger spills out of us because anger is already inside of us. In Mark 7, verses 20 to 23, Jesus says, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person." When someone bumps into you, it may provide the opportunity for you to sin, but it's not the cause of your sin. How often does someone try to excuse their anger by saying, that wasn't the real me? But Jesus says just the opposite. That is the real you. All it takes is the right amount of pressure and what's inside comes out. I didn't think that I had a problem with anger until I had kids, but parenting put just the right amount of pressure on me to bring out what's in my heart. So we have to go deeper than behavior change. We do need heart change. We don't just want to address the fruit. We want to address the root. So let's read from James chapter 1, verses 19 to 20. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So what is James telling us to be slow to speak and get angry about? Well, chapter one is all about going through trials. And when you meet a trial, James says we need to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So the words we hear and the words we speak have a bearing on how we act. Not listening combined with hasty speech results in being sinfully reactionary. Now, being a good listener is a great principle, but why is James telling us to be quick to hear? Well, in the surrounding verses, the words that James wants us to hear are all God's words. There's the word of truth in verse 18, the implanted word in verse 21, and then we're supposed to be doers of the word in verses 22 to 25. So this isn't just better communication advice. We need to be quick to listen to God's word if we're to understand our trials rightly. We need wisdom from God's word if we're to face our trials rightly. 
So to not be quick to listen is to be quick to make our own assessment, our own diagnosis of what's happening apart from God's word. And when we interpret our trials apart from his word, the result is the anger of man that does not produce the righteousness of God. The words that start instantly spewing from our mouths reveal the lies we believe and the things we really value. So what is it that we believe in our hearts that makes us angry in our trials? We're going to look at four underlying beliefs. First, we believe that we deserve what we desire. Let's look at James 1, verses 14 to 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So our own desire for something is what lures and entices us into temptation. Also, just a little later, James 4 Verses one to two says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. A question we often ask in our house is, what were you wanting so badly that you were willing to sin to get it? Our anger reveals what we desire, what we value. We desire bad things or we desire good things but have given those things an improper place in our hearts. If we value recognition more than we should, we'll get angry. Or if we value financial stability more than we should, we'll get angry. If we value peace and quiet, kids that stay in bed or uninterrupted time with our spouse more than we should, we'll get angry. And we move pretty quickly from I want it to I deserve it. We start demanding what we want. It's self-righteousness that causes us to believe that we've earned something. And when we don't get what we think we deserve, we get angry. And we see this all over the place in the Bible. In the very first story after the fall, Cain believed he deserved to have his sacrifice accepted by God. Naaman believed he was worthy to have a prophet heal him. The prodigal son, his brother, believed that he deserved greater favor from their father. When we believe we are deserving, grace is an insult to us. Whether someone else gets grace or our own merit is rejected, making us dependent on grace, either way, we're actually angry at grace. When we say things like, this shouldn't be happening to me, or I deserve better, what we're really saying is, I shouldn't need grace. James says, you do not have because you do not ask. Think about that. All of our energy being spent in quarrels and fights and war and murder. And James says, you didn't ask. Prayer, not just treating God like customer service, but dependent, earnest, drawing near to God requires me to humble myself and admit that I need grace. So we crave something and we tell ourselves that we should have it. But then it's threatened. So we tell ourselves, if I don't protect it, I will lose it. Our anger is often rooted in fear. We're afraid of losing what we desire. Either something is preventing us from getting it or we already have it, but now it's being taken away. When someone rear ends your new car 
when your girlfriend suddenly stops responding to your texts, when you discover that you didn't actually hang up the phone before you started being sarcastic, we get angry when we're afraid of losing something. It's interesting how an angry man seems so powerful and intimidating on the outside that we wouldn't think of him as being insecure. But an angry man is a fearful man. He's actually a very weak man who's afraid of losing control of what he wants. You know, we think of anger as a response that just comes out of nowhere. It just happens. But have you ever been in an argument and then someone knocks on the door? How do you answer the door? Somehow that knock has the power to instantly give you self-control. That's because the desire to protect your reputation is strong enough for you to control your anger. And do you see what's sad about that? That means the opinion of a stranger is worth more than the experience of your spouse or your child or your friend. You see, what looks like losing control is often our attempt to take control. Remember that anger supplies us with energy to attack or defend But because we've replaced God with ourselves on the throne, now that energy to help the oppressed gets repurposed for our own selfish ends. And so our anger can be really manipulative. Getting the other person to feel afraid can help alleviate our own fears. And again, this is where there's a distinction with abuse as it relates to anger. Anger is just another tactic that an abusive husband uses alongside ridicule or blame shifting or mind games or controlling finances. And these tactics all help him to maintain power and control over his wife. So when you start to see these patterns of using these various tactics, you're actually seeing abuse. Anger is just usually the easiest thing to notice. And it's likely the tactic that will get the attention of the wife or someone around her to expose the abuse that's already taking place. So next, thirdly, we tell ourselves, if they violate my desire, they need to pay. When our control is frustrated, we often respond by taking revenge. When the college student snubs the messy roommate or the dad disciplines his child in anger, something challenged our deity and we're all trying to make it right through sin. We perceive injustice and try to deal out just retribution, but the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We might be able to get the other person to clean up their stuff or quit nagging us, but the peace we just managed to take for ourselves is a fraud. Our anger is powerless to produce righteousness in us, and it's powerless to produce righteousness in the other person. And these three things that we tell ourselves, I deserve what I desire. If I don't protect it, I will lose it. And if they violate it, they need to pay. These three things ultimately reveal something we believe about God. You see, underneath these lies, I believe I'm on my own. I'm the only one looking out for me. This is thinking like an orphan instead of thinking like an adopted child. It's ultimately a wrong view of myself flowing from a wrong view of God that causes me to think this way. I'm essentially saying, I don't believe God satisfies my deepest desires. I need something else in order to have life. I don't believe God gives me what I deserve. He's holding out on me. I don't believe God's in control, or if he is, then he isn't for my good. It's up to me to save myself. I don't believe God is just. If I don't make them pay, they're gonna get away with it. 
I don't believe God is with me. I'm on my own and it's all up to me. So who are we ultimately angry at? When the item at the store is out of stock, who's ultimately behind that? When your laptop crashes before you saved your work, who ordained that? I'm using intentionally trivial things because there is no unspiritual realm of your life that God doesn't care about or isn't sovereign over. At the end of the story of Joseph, his brothers came to him afraid that Joseph would take revenge on them for selling him into slavery. And Joseph responds to them this way, do not fear for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Joseph was freed from being angry and taking revenge because he believed he wasn't alone in all of this. If we believe what God says about himself, then instead of trying to take his place, we can cry out to him in our distress. We can lament what's confusing and painful, and yet we can still cling to him and trust him. So stop hating a sovereign God. If God isn't who he says he is, then there's much to fear. You're the only one who can save you, and your anger may very well be the tool of your salvation. But if you believe in this sovereign one who has saved you and adopted you and keeps you, then stop living as if there is no God. So we see how the things we tell ourselves reveal unbelief and what we really value in our hearts. But before we move on, I want to consider the impact our anger has on our relationship with God and relationships in the church. So let's take a look at the passage that Stephen read for us, Ephesians 4, 25 to 32. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Now, there's a lot here that relates to anger, but for now, I want to focus in on verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. You know, my relationship with my kids is where I'm most aware of the effects of my anger. The thought of being a hypocrite and hindering them from knowing their heavenly father, that's what most concerns me. But the relationship that is most affected by our sinful anger is actually our relationship with God. We have been given God's personal spirit dwelling inside of us and our sin personally grieves him. So what is it about our sin and particularly our anger that causes the spirit to feel grieved? Well, in the book of Ephesians, there's a strong emphasis on unity within the church. Verse 25 said that we are members one of another. We are united together in Christ, under Christ. And in Ephesians 2, we see the Spirit is the one giving all adopted children together access to the Father. The Spirit's the one building us up together into a dwelling place for God. 
In chapter three, the spirit is the one strengthening us together to know the love of Christ. And at the beginning of chapter four, Paul charges us to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. So union with Christ means unity under Christ within his church. And so what is it about bitterness and wrath and anger that grieves the Holy Spirit? We are fighting against the very love and unity in the church that the Spirit is here to produce. We are opposing the Holy Spirit in us and trying to tear down the body of Christ that he is seeking to build up. Let's just think about bitterness specifically for a moment. Bitterness is basically a cherished anger. It's an anger that you nurse and aren't willing to let go of. Anger that we don't deal with is the one thing the Bible says gives the devil a foothold. It gives him a beachhead to invade from. Have you ever fantasized about a past confrontation with someone and replayed the conflict in your head? Did you imagine having just the right words to say to put them in their place? These thoughts play right into Satan's hand. A hard heart gives opportunity to the devil, tears down others, and causes disunity. And this is in contrast with the work of the Spirit to work to build up the church, extending grace from a tender heart. 1 Corinthians 13 is the famous love chapter in the Bible. And in context, once again, Paul is promoting unity in the church. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 through 7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. When we are irritable or resentful, we are walking contrary to love. Our sinful anger is the opposite of love. It reveals a lack of patience, a lack of kindness, a lack of humility, a lack of forgiveness. And so we grieve the spirit through our opposition to his love and all because we're not responding to grace. Remember the logic of Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So it's the forgiveness of God in Christ that enables our gracious attitude towards others. Only in seeing what we've been forgiven will we love much in response. And so with this window into what our anger tells us about ourselves and our relationships, now we wanna look at what Jesus' anger tells us about God. Now, God's anger is talked about in the Bible more than any other anger, Um, but his anger is actually rooted in a different aspect of his character, and that's love. God responds to injustice with anger, but God is love. In eternity past, there was no injustice to provoke anger in God, but he's always existed in love between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And because God is love, even his anger is a loving anger. His anger is actually an expression of his justice and love. If we share in his love, we will also care when people made in his image are mistreated and taken advantage of. 
You can't be truly good in a fallen world and not get angry. Now today, we're not addressing how we should seek justice or advocate for the oppressed, but I want us to see that God's anger at injustice should bring us comfort when we see injustice. Now maybe some of the things you've experienced make it really hard for you to find comfort in a justice that we don't get to see yet. You are a victim of Adam's sin and other people's sin. You may not have words to describe the wounds that you feel. But in order to deal with our pain, we need to think more of God's anger, not less. It's God's anger at injustice and his promise to make everything right in the end that enables us to let go. Being stuck wishing things had gone differently or fantasizing about vindicating ourselves will not change the past and it won't help us to follow Christ. Romans 12 verses 19 to 21 says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The assurance of God's justice frees us up to overcome evil with good. Jesus knows what you're going through. He's gone before us in this. It says in 1 Peter 2.23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. God will vindicate you. And those who have sinned against you will either suffer his wrath or Jesus already suffered his wrath in their place. Do you take comfort in knowing that justice will be done? Do you long that even more than a display of God's justice in the destruction of the wicked, that his justice might be magnified in a sinner being ransomed by Christ? Jesus prayed on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Are you inclined to that same attitude towards those who've hurt you. So we need to think more about God's anger as sufferers, but we also need to think more about God's anger as sinners. To do that, let's take a look at three scenes of Jesus's anger in the New Testament and see what they teach us. We looked at how our anger grieves the Holy Spirit, but there's another place that talks about Jesus being grieved. Let's look at Mark chapter three, verses one through five. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out in his hand was restored. Here we see Jesus' anger, but it's connected with him being grieved. Our selfish anger grieves God, but in this passage, Jesus himself feels anger and grief over hardness of heart. The Pharisees want God's Messiah dead. They're oppressing the people. They feel no compassion for the man with the withered hand. And what does Jesus' anger do? He boldly shows compassion and heals the man. 
The second instance of Jesus' anger is when he cleansed the temple. If we look at Matthew 21, 12 to 14, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. So Jesus purifies the temple of the greedy commerce that's taking place, but his motivation is restoration. Did you see how clearing the temple court restores the temple as a house of prayer for all peoples and it cleared the way for him to minister to the blind and the lame that came to him and were healed. Lastly, we see Jesus' anger at Lazarus' tomb. Let's read from John 11. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. So the words translated deeply moved actually suggest anger or outrage. The same sin and death that cause him to feel anger are the same sin and death that cause him to grieve and then break the power of death by calling Lazarus, come out. In these stories, Jesus reveals God's anger, but he doesn't reveal it as we might expect. We see the danger of hardening our hearts, of hypocrisy and oppression, the reality of death, but in every case, we also see his compassion and restoration for anyone who comes to him. And a just but loving God's grace is made possible because Jesus suffered the righteous anger of God in our place. As it says in Isaiah chapter 12, verse 1, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. God can turn his anger away from us because he turned it on himself in his son. Jesus paid the price so that you can experience that comfort in him. Sinful anger is in opposition to love, but righteous anger was satisfied through love. Jesus is God's love made visible. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. He's not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. He is not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is who bore the anger that your anger deserved. Our anger is put away by believing God's anger is satisfied in Christ. If you've never received this gift, then you must come to Jesus. And there's one final mention of Jesus's anger in the New Testament. Revelation speaks of the eternal wrath of the lamb towards the unrepentant. And this is terrifying. The whole imagery of Jesus as a lamb is because he's the lamb who was slain so that you wouldn't have to experience God's wrath but one day the opportunity to turn will be over and you will come under the wrath of the very one who sacrificed himself to save you.
The time to turn is now. Will you not cast yourself on his mercy? Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So we've examined what our anger tells us about ourselves and what Jesus' anger tells us about God. And now we're going to look at what we need to tell ourselves about our anger. So what should we do when we're tempted to be angry? Well, here are five truths that you might tell yourself in the moment. Number one, this is all about me and my father. When we meet trials, we have a hair trigger for angry responses. We may only have a split second to interrupt the cycle. But remember, our trials are here to test and refine our relationship with our heavenly father. They make us depend on him and grow our trust in him. So when a trial comes, I want to remember that this is all about me and my father. Number two, I am not God. When one of my kids defiantly does the same thing over and over again, I can feel that temperature rising inside of me because of the slight to my authority. I'm tempted to use anger to force obedience, but I have to remember that God is the one who deserves my obedience, and this isn't how my father treats me. Number three, what God ordains is for my good. Even the smallest inconvenience is under his sovereign control. Not getting what I want right now is part of his fatherly care for me. When you desire possessions, remember that the Lord is your portion. You have a beautiful inheritance. When you desire intimacy, remember the marriage day of the Lamb is very near. When you want to protect your reputation, remember that what the Bible says about you is far worse than what anyone else can say about you, and yet your identity is redeemed, adopted, beloved. Number four, God has been gracious to me. To help you respond to this grace, I want to suggest that you remember two logs, a log to keep and a log to get rid of. First, it might be useful to keep a log of when you get angry. You can write down when it happened and what you wanted. Maybe you can share it with another believer for accountability and prayer. As you identify the desires that you try to satisfy through sin, you could find verses that could remind you of the better promises of God through grace. And the second log is a log to get rid of. And that's the log Jesus says to remove from your eyes so that you don't judge your brother. When someone bumps us and we respond sinfully to them, we need to go and confess that to them. There probably is a speck in the other person's eye, but Jesus tells you to focus on your need for change more than on their need for change. We're the ones with a log because we've forgotten that we have a far greater debt between us and God that has been forgiven through Christ. How can we be like the unmerciful servant who forgot the incalculable debt he was forgiven and then went to his fellow servant, choking him, saying, pay what you owe. Don't be one sinner choking another sinner over a smaller debt. No matter how significant someone else's offense is, we have to believe we've been forgiven infinitely more. There's a quote that goes, I'm a much bigger offender than I could ever be a victim. God has been gracious to me, so I must be gracious towards others. And he gives us the grace for our sins, but he also gives us the grace to change. And that leads us to our final truth. I am a new creation. If you have called on the name of the Lord, 
then you have been born again. You are a new creation. His grace gives you freedom from the guilt of sin, but also from the power of sin. We were made new. God put his Holy Spirit inside of us. And now in the place of sinful anger, his spirit enables us to have the fruit of love and patience, gentleness, self-control. And so you have the ability and the necessity of putting away what belongs to your former manner of life. You're already born again. You're already created after the likeness of God. So stop living like a dead man. Start living as the new creation that you are. In the Ephesians passage we looked at earlier, Paul gave us a lot of things to actively do. Put away, speak, do not sin, share, do not grieve, be kind, forgive. We put off and we put on. We saw that repentance doesn't just like, look like a thief not stealing anymore or even like a thief starting to work, but it looks like a person, a thief now working and eagerly sharing what he's earned with others. So if we're to do this with our anger, it takes effort, but we also let the spirit do his work. Let's read verses 30 to 31. One more time. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Who puts away all bitterness and wrath and anger? The spirit that sealed us, the very spirit that our anger grieves is the spirit that puts our anger away. We're not alone in this. Our anger is put away by believing God's anger is satisfied in Christ. It's ultimately the glory of Christ in the unity of his church that's at stake. Will you resist the Spirit's work or will you join him in putting away your anger for the sake of his church? Wherever you fail, remember the grace of your Father. And wherever by the Spirit you don't give in to sinful anger or you respond with gracious words, celebrate that. Praise God for his Spirit being with you and helping you. Praise him for the gift of getting to participate in building up the body so that Christ might be magnified in all the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your precious Son. God, we want Jesus to be made much of in our lives Help us not to be hearers only this morning. We've looked at ourselves in the mirror of your word. Please don't let us walk away and immediately forget what we've seen. God, help us to put off our sinful anger. Let us be a church that's characterized by our unity, by our love for one another, by our gracious upbuilding words towards one another, all for the reputation of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.